Hey guys, great news. Thanks to our partner, Beta, this week we're giving away Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scales. This scale has high accuracy and full body composition. Body Plus includes coaches, rewards, and it automatically sends all of your data to the free HealthMate app. With tools at hand, such as trend screens and nutrition tracking, the Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale is the perfect way for users to track and achieve their weight loss goals. Enter this week's giveaway at www.mission.org giveaway for a chance to win a free Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale. Or if you want to purchase, go directly to www.withings.com and enter Mission Daily 20 to get 20% off the Withings Body Plus Smart Scale. This code is only valid on withings.com or visit your nearby beta store. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Ian sits down with Anjane Midha, co-founder and CEO at Ubiquity6, a startup using computer vision to create multiplayer experiences for virtual and augmented reality. Before founding Ubiquity6 in 2017, Anjane was in venture capital and a partner at Kleiner Perkins. On this episode of Mission Daily, Ian and Anjane sit down and discuss how his experience in VC led to the creation of Ubiquity6 the future of AR and VR experiences, and the distinction between AR and VR for developers and gamers. Welcome to Mission Daily. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have in a location, Are we? can we say where this is? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, we're in <laughs> sunny San Francisco. It's Foggest right now, as uh, Carl the Foggest told us. And we're looking at the beautiful Bay Bridge, in your HQ. Anjane, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's exciting to be here. We have a very large and warm place in our heart for all things AR, VR, and what the future is going to hold for this. So it's something we know our listeners care about, but we are extremely passionate about. Can you tell us a little bit about why you were so excited to found the company and create what you're building now? Like I think a lot of people uh, who start companies, it starts with an obsession with a problem that you can't help but try to solve yourself. Uh, so when I, was a, when I was an investor, I had started a fund to just invest in AR, VR, and computer vision. And I think a common thread I was starting to see amongst really talented founders was that they were really talented creatives or, or technical folks wanting to build AR and VR experiences. But there was a common problem that many of them were facing, which is that of distribution where you can build a really immersive, really engaging, fun experience, but how do you get it out to hundreds of millions of people? And, and the world of consumer software has usually benefited from one major type of distribution, which is word of mouth and virality. And the, that type of distribution usually shows up when you have an experience that can be shared by multiple people, right? So whether that's a social network like Facebook or it's um, multiplayer games like Fortnite, the ability for two or more people to share an experience, a view of the world that is synchronized Consumer software usually takes for granted. When you enable that for an end consumer, that's when they start telling their friends, right? And AR and VR lacked that. Uh, AR in particular lacked that ability at the time that I was starting to see this emergence because syncing up two or more devices very precisely in the world um, has, is not a solved problem. GPS, which is the closest thing we have to a global coordinate system for devices, is only good to about 30 feet. But for augmented reality, when two or more people are in the same space in the physical world, looking at a part of the world, you need your views of reality to be synced up to a few millimeters. Um, at most, maybe a few centimeters is the error you can get away with. Um, because it turns out the real world, reality, 
is functions at that at that level of precision. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, when it was like, oh, AI can accurately tell an elephant like with like 77% of the time or something like that. It's like, well, a four-year-old can tell 100% of the time, right? right. So it's right. like, you know, those those millimeters, like your brain, is it like your brain intuitively knows when it's off? Or oh, what? yeah. Oh, well, for, forget it. Even before it's off, like if, <laughs> imagine being playing a, a game like Pokemon Go yeah. where you're trying to sell the illusion of reality and say this Pikachu or whatever Pokemon you're trying to capture is the same one that you and I are both seeing, but mine is 30 feet away. Yeah, totally. Right. And 30 feet away in a completely different direction. So you'd be seeing one over there, you know, and, and I might be seeing one 30 feet away in a completely different, you know, north and you might be facing south. We are not going to believe that we're in the same reality. Right. So even before you get to the point of your brain picking up, you know, cognitively hurting, saying, I still don't think this is the same object because it's a few millimeters apart. We're not even at that step yet with with AR, with AR. In 2017, at the time I started the company with Ankit, my co-founder, we were in the, the, the world was in a state where you couldn't even get a synced up view of reality better than 30 feet. Did you feel like, you know, after having some experience investing in it, that it was like, time to create your own thing? Yes. And I, th- I think the, the, the investing piece made it much more clear that this was a really important pain point to solve. I'm not sure investing made me any more smarter or any more ambitious or hardworking, anything like that, which you, all the things you need to, to build a successful company. But I, I, did, I do think it gave me a more pronounced understanding of how valuable of a problem this was to solve because when you're working with these founders as a as an investor you're trying to understand how does this become a really large business yeah and distribution is a key element of that and so i i my my belief was if you could unlock distribution via word of mouth these shared experiences for these developers then these really talented creative people could build large companies but that that was the key missing piece what i was looking for at the time was was somebody solving this problem that i could invest in but nobody was. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I think if you do the math, like we started doing the math of why was that the case? Why hadn't anybody built this shared experience layer? I, it, it was for two reasons. I think the, the, all the big platforms were actually disincentivized to do it because they would end up cannibalizing one of their own key, either product lines or business models like advertising. And the second was it's a really, really hard technical problem. Yeah. And, and the key technology pieces that you need to pull this off didn't really come together uh, until about 24 months ago the market needs everyone to succeed right. to a certain point. Right. Otherwise, it's just it's just too expensive of, of a problem to right. bring to right. like, you know, do that sort of stuff. So that's Basically, I think with AR and VR, we're, we're still at a stage where we're all in it together. Yeah. But the major incumbents aren't. Yeah. They're in the business of protecting their, their own market share. Whereas AR and VR, I think, is so early of a market that it will not succeed if you have people protecting their own fiefdoms from the start. There's only two ways, I think, usually to, to win a, a battle if, if you don't have sufficient troops, which is you, you team up with other kingdoms and you pool your troops, right? Or you don't fight the battle. You bide your time and, and you wait till your troops are large enough and then you fight the battle. So you've got to postpone the battle. Um, and I think my, my belief is the battle here is taking AR, VR mainstream, proving to the rest of the world that this is a useful medium that's here to stay, that's going to change our lives. And I think the only way we succeed right now is to, to fight collectively, to to do it together because the individual troops just aren't big enough. What is the state of like where we're at now in terms of, you know, this ecosystem and and then we'll get into where where it's going after. Yeah. I, I think we're in this in the same phase that smartphones were at right before the BlackBerry dropped. Right. So the the components were all there. 
The supply chains weren't quite there, but were starting to, to show up. And you were having talented enough product people from other industries like PC and telecom who understood how the initial shape of a product that brought those things might look like, but had no idea what the V4, V5 product would be that would make it a mainstream hit, right? And I think that's where we are right now. There's this fog of war. The skill sets that you need across engineering, product design, marketing, distribution, those things actually are now exist in various different companies and different parts of the world. And the hardware and software components are, are all there. So we have the sufficient tech we need to put a, a V1 product together that starts to get you to the kind of success that I think the BlackBerry had with specific use case. In BlackBerry's case, the specific use case they solved was email, corporate email, yeah. right? And that just resonated with, with massive numbers of people, but it wasn't the iPhone. Right. And so I don't think we're at the iPhone moment quite yet, but I don't think we're very far either. I, I think we're about 24 months away from the iPhone moment, but we're very close to the BlackBerry moment right now. For a lot of technological innovations, it kind of starts like at the enterprise level right. or at like the gaming level. Yeah. Right. It's because it's like something super fun right. that then becomes something that businesses can use right. or it's something that, you know, the most expensive businesses in the world can use. Do you kind of feel like the use cases for AR, it's it's funny how it's such a clear use case for gaming and it's right. such a clear use case for like certain types of like modeling and manufacturing or something like that. Right. So you have these two crystal clear use cases, but right. it's kind of like the middle 80 or 90% hasn't really been defined yet. You're spot on with the with those two categories. And and I think what's what's interesting is that over the last few years, uh, some of the most successful breakout consumer software products start with one in mind, bounce to the other, and then find a way to essentially segue into the mainstream via prosumer use cases, yeah. right? So a really good examples here actually with gaming and the enterprise are Slack and Discord. Yeah, I was just going to say right? Slack, yeah. Both gaming studios, both that develop really good multiplayer networking technology to allow people to talk to each other in really efficient ways. And ended up not succeeding as game studios, but ended up resonating ultimately with hundreds of millions of consumers, not just the enterprise folks. So I think you're right. I think AR is an example of that. I'm obviously pretty excited about the particular use case that we, we've identified. We ended up falling into that pattern as well. When we started the company, we looked like an AR gaming studio, right? Our goal was to create multiplayer shared AR experiences in the real world in a way that hadn't been possible. And then... We got overwhelmed by the amount of interest we got from people in the enterprise, people in areas that we had never expected saying, the, the gaming stuff you're doing is cool, but can we just have your tech and your tools for this completely other use case that we've been dreaming about for years and years? And I think now we're at a point where we've been able to draw a through line for what the shared pieces are of the platform that you need to enable the gaming use cases, but also the enterprise. And then I think when you do that work, you end up unlocking a whole long tail of consumer experiences that aren't the enterprise or gaming. They're just everyday social experiences. So what are some of those things that you're working on? Like, who are the types of people that are those, you know, really excited folks that, that right. are talking about your product? I think we've got three major types of folks we get excited about. Um, the first is real world locations and venues, right? These are people who have spent hundreds of millions of dollars and their entire life revolves and business revolves around bringing people together in yeah. the physical world. Yep. And a large category of those people are really struggling now, whether you're a retailer, you're a physical brick and mortar you know, food and beverage place, because so much behavior has shifted online, a lot of these folks who are really talented at, at creating physical spaces are suffering. And they want, they want to understand how to 
use deck to to enhance the experience of the of the physical location so that's one the second is developers and these are people who are creative who are technically talented but just have not had a way to go from being purely online developers to actually putting their experiences in the physical world affecting real world behavior i think games are one category of those that that type of developer but i i think there's a much broader type of creative and developer who's a web developer who understands how to build a website, how to build stuff with web technologies like React, but just have not had a canvas in the real world. So that's the second type of people we get pretty excited about. And the, and the, and the last type is just people like you and me, everyday users, who the reality is we live our daily lives in physical spaces. More and more of our behavior is shifting online. These smartphones were supposed to bring us all closer together, but instead we're all Netflixing and chilling way more than we ever have. (laughs) Bringing those people together with real world locations and venues and and developers is, is I I think those are three types of folks we get most excited about who are are most excited about using the stuff we have as well. And the three pillars, the way we, we bring those folks together is A, give anybody the ability to turn any real world location into a shared space for a shared activity across AR and VR. Um, the second is a, a really fast, easy way to author in those spaces. And then the last is a, a way to launch and distribute those experiences with a URL without having to keep building these large standalone mobile experiences that people don't want to download anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many use cases that I feel like conceptually people would understand, but they need to like experience it. Right. I always think about you know, when I'm, when I'm walking through a place or I see, you know, whatever it is, a dress or whatever thing it is. Um, and I want to send it to my girlfriend, like, Oh, Hey, this looks awesome. She's like, who knows if that would fit or not. Right. right? It's right. like, it would be great to add, you know, a layer on top, like an AR layer on top of that and be able to be like, Hey, this is great. Or, Hey, they have three colors, but they actually have 17 colors in the store. They only have three colors sitting right here. What would the, you know, blue and red one look like? Right. Like those things are so clear in my mind that it would be extremely helpful to have AR to like layer on to everyday life. Right. It seems like a lot of the companies that would use, that would leverage those don't have a robust enough capacity to be able to provide that like digital infrastructure. We all live our lives in physical spaces and we deal with physical objects and physical assets every day in our real world. And that part, that embodied part of our lives have been completely missing from the internet. Our use case was games, and we said, okay, we got these. We got to bring these physical spaces online, and the things in them, like these objects, like these assets, need a digital twin. They need an identity, a relationship to the digital world. And when we created that relationship, kind of like a Google Doc, where you give, if you give a Google Doc to a product manager, they're going to use that Google Doc to write a, a product spec, right? Mm-hmm. And you give a Google Doc to a screenplay writer, they're going to write a screenplay. It is a new way for people to express themselves and interact with each other. And physical spaces are basically the same thing. We, we wanted to build games in them. But once you bring these physical spaces online, different humans want to do whatever, what, different things with those spaces and express themselves for whatever end, end problem they're trying to solve. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in the Google Doc example, it is now you can collaborate in real time on your mobile device or wherever it is, you know, 24-7. And right. I think that, that that piece of it is, I, I love that G Suite ad where it's like four people running with a key. I was like, this is the silliest thing ever. But it, oh, it really did like paint the picture of my mind. Whoever wrote that, shout out to them. Yeah, it's four different people doing the same thing, right. you know, collaborating in real time. Right. It's like that experience for AR is beyond exciting. I guess like, you know, taking a step back when you were originally founding the company, you know, once you realize all these use cases and got a lot of feedback, 
What does the future of AR look like? I won't take too much credit for this because I think there's a book that really summarizes that future really succinctly. It's called Rainbow's End. And it's by uh, Werner Vinge, Werner Vingia. He's a science fiction author that, he's a computer scientist by trade. And he's a, he's been a computer science professor at UCSD for a long time. And because he has such a strong understanding of computing fundamentals and the state of computing, his fiction is often rooted in a version of reality that's not too far away. And what he tries to do... It's like near term. It's, it's near term-ish. Mm-hmm. It's still sufficiently far enough that, you know, it feels like you're reading a novel, but it doesn't take too much effort to draw a, a straight line from where we are today and the types of stories he tells because he asks, what do our daily lives look like reimagined when this technology becomes ubiquitous? Yeah. Um, hence our name, Ubiquity 6. And I think that that future outwardly doesn't look too different. Um, from the way the world looks right now. It's not like you have crazy, you know, holograms floating around the world and it looks like Blade Runner. I think it actually looks much more just like we do right now. In fact, the only things that might change, we, we have fewer hacks like billboards and digital signage. Those are really hacks for that, that humans have evolved to put information on top of the real world. Um, and I think those things actually will recede and the world will start to, from an outwardly standpoint, look a lot cleaner, a lot more minimalist, look, look a lot more natural. But inwardly, what will be happening is whether it's via, you know, moment you taking out your a device to, to look at overlays in the real world or it's a, a wearable form factor, our inward mind's eye will be much, much more richer uh, and you'll be basically... Uh, browsing multiple realities on top of the real world space. So the future does not look like Blade Runner, I think, from a physical external standpoint. And But internally, it looks a lot more like the future in Rainbow's End, where people are interacting with other humans from around the world in real time. You're able to point to a, a, you know, a few centimeters in space with a friend from halfway around the planet and communicate about in a way you just can't today. And you go into a shop and you have a completely different experience than somebody else. I think those overlays start to... You Essentially, everyone will have a different version of a spatial internet that they're browsing from whatever device they want, but outwardly the world will look the same. There's a great cartoon that was written, I think it was in 1904, 1906, uh, at the World's Fair in Paris. And it was like the future, 100 years from now. And it's like all these people, all these... um, kind of like young people all in like flying cars and all sort of crazy stuff, but they're all wearing clothes from like 1906, right? I always think it's like whenever you see the stuff in in sci-fi that nobody's wearing jeans, it's like, trust me, jeans are going to be around. They've been around for, you know, whatever, 150 years, uh, Levi's going nowhere. But I think that that you're exactly right. The world is going to look very similar to the way it is now, but the levels of connectivity is going to be off the charts. Right. Do you feel like with all of those changes, do you feel like the power of AR versus VR, like being completely immersed into something versus like layering onto the real world? Do you think that those two things like have a huge Mm. kind of uh, devolving moment in the future where they're stopping lumped together so much? People lump those two things together. And I think what will happen is the reason that's happening is we don't have the adequate dictionary and vocabulary to refer to specific things. And so we, Good point, yeah. we we sort of lump things together for ease of communication. But actually what's going on is this massive revolution to anybody who's in the space in, in what I would call spatial computing, not, not AR and VR. Just the way software became, started to be designed completely differently once smartphones became ubiquitous, then you had a software that was mobile native. I think we're about to see a, a whole generation of software that's going to be spatial computing native. The software that was designed inherently to be skeuomorphic, to refer to real world primitives, real world constructions, real world uh, coordinate systems, 
that's the way people envisioned the first version of the internet. If you go back to the 90s, the early 90s, if you look at all the metaphors, all this vocabulary we use to describe the internet, they were all spatial metaphors. Information superhighway, mm-hmm. chat rooms, mm-hmm. right? geocities, websites. We were clutching at the physical world for metaphors. And what ended up happening was once smartphones became ubiquitous, all that skeuomorphism went away, right? So suddenly now you had things like channels, scrolling feeds and lists, pages, screens. The metaphors got became less and less spatial, less and less skeuomorphic because people realized that technology was not going to deliver on that. And I think what's happening now is that spatial computing actually is delivering on that first version of the metaphors that people had, and it's becoming much more natural. So when you design an app like Snapchat in 2011, you're doing it for the smartphone first. If you design a new form of social messaging app or a communication app product in in a spatial computing native world, you design it for a real world room, a physical room, a physical building, a physical city. And you allow people to bridge the metaphor of the building in the physical world into the digital world. That's what I think we're doing. And I think that's where the AR VRP starts to not be able to describe it accurately. So virtual reality is a bit of a misnomer is a bit misleading because we've actually had virtual realities for a long time. Yeah, for a super long time. Right? MMOs basically are virtual realities. And in many ways, the Oculus, Quest, the HTC Vive, these first generation of headsets were just our better form factors to experience those MMOs. Yeah. Right? It's much more immersive. It makes you feel like you're there. But the AR piece is interesting in a very different vector. It, it, the augmented reality means that you have an anchor to the real world. You're augmenting the real world canvas, mm-hmm. not a virtual world canvas. And, and so from where I'm sitting, we're, we're solving a spatial computing problem where you're saying, okay, how do you capture the real world? And then how do you experience that, that real world from whatever device you're on, whether that's a mobile device and whether you're actually there or not. If you're remote and you're on a, on a web browser, uh, you're on your laptop or you're on a VR headset, how do I make you feel like you're communicating with the same room that you were yesterday while you were actually physically present there. And I think, again, this is really hard to describe with the words and the syntax yeah, totally. we have right now. I, that's why I think demos are the best way to communicate this. Usually when, you know, when we're talking to people like candidates who want to join the company, we don't even try to describe what we're doing. We just bring them in for a demo. You tweeted back in 2016, going back in the Wayback Machine. I've heard a lot of people claim VR would not have happened without Facebook Oculus. This is untrue. Virtual reality was coming regardless. Facebook sped it up. I love that thought because... It goes to like the inevitability of these technologies once they're uh, out in the world. I mean, you could make a really good argument that as soon as people saw these holographic images in Star Wars, that it's like someone's making that. Somewhere, oh, yeah. Right. Like right. that was like, you know, and the Magic League founders have talked about that and things right. like that. And I love that you reference science fiction in, in talking about that sort of thing. But what did you kind of mean by that? And how do you kind of see the different players in this ecosystem evolving over time? In that tweet, what I meant was much more, it was quite factual. Basically, when I got to Stanford in 2011, part of a, one of the first classes I took was with a professor, Jeremy Bjelnson, and he had a VR lab. You know, the, I mean, every, the entire Oculus DK1 experience was already there for people to try. The only difference was that it wasn't backed by uh, a major internet giant. They weren't trying to productionize it for consumer deployment in the same time frame. But it was the exact same functionality. It had six-stop tracking. It was tethered to a, to a PC running a, a really fast GPU. And it was funded by DARPA, which is usually the case with, with computing technology in yeah, the US. Turns out. Right. And so already for anybody who, um, I, I think part of our class uh, at the time was if you went and signed up for one of Jeremy's experiments as a test subject, you got extra credit. Oh, that's uh, hilarious. So anybody who's, who got the extra credit would have told you 
that this was inevitable. Like once you tried it out, uh, there was this experiment where uh, it was part of a psychology class. So there was a, uh, I think they were doing some research on phobias. And, and one of the phobias they were researching was vertigo. There was a virtual plank and you, you would walk across this virtual plank and there, you know, you were standing on top of a multi thousand foot skyscraper and you were looking down and the whole, the, the experiment w- w- would ask you to, to jump. And the number of people who just couldn't bring themselves to do it was, was crazy. Uh, even though you as a human knew that you were just in a room, you were literally just in a, a lab room with a regular floor and you knew that if you j- jumped off, nothing would happen. And for anyone who went through that experience and you asked them, is VR going to happen? They're going to be like, yeah, this, uh, of course, this is going to happen in my lifetime. It's probably going to happen in the next two or three years because it was so compelling. And when you, when you give somebody a computing experience that's so compelling and they have so much conviction that it's going to happen, the market will find a way to deliver on it. And I think Oculus was one example. In fact, I'm fairly certain that the Facebook team, including Zuck, took a visit, visited the VHIL before they went down and saw Oculus and decided to acquire it. And that's just one data point I had. At the same time, the USC lab where Palmer interned already had a, a working six-doff deployment of VR. There were other major labs around the world who had it. Usually, I, I believe strongly in convergent evolution, which is that uh, humans tend to arrive at the same conclusion irrespective of each other at the same time, because the world starts to get ready. The technology starts to become possible. Various different factors come together at the same time. And if you have an idea that is compelling enough that captures human imagination, no matter what culture you're from, the market will find a way to deliver on it. And that that's the case with VR. I mean, the first version of VR was probably proposed in some kind of science fiction novel hundreds of years before the Oculus stuff, right? So that's what I was trying to capture there. I had had a very personal experience where as a freshman, even before knowing Oculus and all of that stuff, it was clear to me when I tried that experience out that the tech was a few years out from mainstream productionization. I mean, I threw up in a tank simulator in like 2006 when uh, I was in the army. Right. So, uh, so everyone's got their version, yeah. right? right? No, exactly. We went, we went down the first, uh, the first or off the first bump and I was like, that's it for me. I also would be the person who doesn't jump off the, uh, off the plank, mm. but that's the thing, right? Like you have, this is part of why this is so exciting is like, you have the world's craziest supercomputer in between your ears. And so when you are, when you're pattern matching things, have you, have you ever seen the like cat videos where you put like a zucchini behind them and then they turn and around it's a snake, and they, right? yeah, and they right, think right, it's a snake, right. right? Like we are engineered, we're hardwired, you know, for a hundred thousand years to be able to you know, pattern match these sort of things. And when it's off, you know, your brain lets you know. With regards to the exciting rise of this ecosystem, you know, we were talking to to someone about how this is the first technological evolution that is everyone knows it's happening mm-hmm. at the same time. So everyone is investing in it at the same time. Whereas like mobile people were all over the place. Like right. some people really missed mobile. We right. had Marissa Meyer on the, sh- on the show talking about how when she took over as CEO of Yahoo, she was like, we had like essentially no mobile. Uh, and that was in like 2011 or whatever. So, right. you know, billion dollar companies missing mobile and, you know, the internet and all that stuff. But this is like really everyone knows it's here. Everyone has right. been through these kind of demos. They know this stuff is going. So there's this influx in both capital and brain power. But to your point, there isn't really that big of an influx in like the developers into this yet, because there's, like you said, no platform that really they can create on. Kind of explain like why you think that is so important to get more people in the world on a platform where they can create. On the surface, it might look like there's a ton of investment in AR and VR and that it hasn't paid off yet. And I, and 
my two responses to that are first, that the amount of funding that has gone into AR and VR is nowhere close to the capital required to actually pull it off. And that's because, actually it goes back to an earlier point we were discussing, the, the first wave of mobile software was entirely non-skeuomorphic in that it was a completely abstracted model of the world, right? So if you use a product like Slack, uh, which is trying to model the organization, a company, and the way it, it communicates, the metaphor at which it ends is that you've got a company, uh, that's a Slack org, and you've got a channel, and that might be equivalent to something like a conference room where people can jump in and discuss some particular project or some particular idea or concept. And the metaphors start breaking down pretty quickly. Then you're completely in abstraction land of consumer software. And I think the cost required to go from that minimal modeling of the world in a non-skeuomorphic way to like very, very, very high fidelity skeuomorphic metaphors of the real world is extremely large. Essentially, what you're trying to do is recreate a one-for-one map of the real world with its physics. Even if you put in like $10 billion of venture capital, it's not going to buy you that. To actually deliver on the promise of merging the digital and physical worlds in an exhaustive fashion, we're not even close to deploying the amount of capital that you need to. Because, and, and here's what I, why I think that's, that unlocks the second answer, which is you ask, well, wh- why isn't there a way for developers and people to creatively build stuff in AR and VR? Well, it's because you don't have a really good, rich canvas of the real world to build on top of. And it takes a hell of a lot more capital <laughs> than the amount that venture is funding today to build that unified, exhaustive 3D canvas that mirrors the real world. Well, and and I want to add on to that too, that once everybody realized that mobile was happening, then individual companies were investing. Like when we talked with Marissa, she was like, we need to build whatever. It was like seven apps or whatever that that Yahoo immediately went into building, right? right? So you're looking at within that organization, they're internally investing. To your point about building the canvas is like, if... 10 different companies all build their version of a canvas, right. that's not really going to, like, right. it's going to be too disparate and not potentially really not move the needle anyway. Yeah, you end up with these local maximas, or maybe even local minimas, uh, because every company is trying to tack on the new platform, in this case mobile, on legacy, on, on a legacy business model, on yep. a legacy team, on a legacy architecture. I mean, I don't think it's a surprise that the biggest the most successful mobile products did not start inside of legacy companies, right? They started as mobile first applications. And that's why I think a lot of the AR, VR software available available to developers today, and I won't name any names, but even the most accessible ones were not built for AR, VR, spatial computing applications. They were built for gamers. Mm -hmm. Like they were built basically to allow game studios to build games better. And games games are a great starting point because you do start, struggling or wrestling with the problem of modeling the real world in a skeuomorphic way, but for it to be useful, for it to be more valuable than just just being a simulation of reality, um, which is what many games end up being, as opposed to actually changing reality, being linked to the real world, you need a, a, a very different kind of authoring environment, a very different kind of engine, a very different set of design decisions that go into saying, we, we're designing the software for AR and VR developers, not for game developers who might also become yeah, AR and VR developers. Important. Yeah, it's a hugely important distinction, especially because when you're creating those things, half the games are story driven. Like right. it's essentially we're writing a movie right. in which you're part of it. Right. And then the other half are open world. Right. So it's like, even within those, you're still creating a framework 
for a specific use case that that person is then going to pursue, right? right. It's not right. It's not saying like, hey, go create whatever is valuable. Right. I mean, wh- one of the most basic, you know, ways that gets manifested is, into your point, like games have traditionally been a very rich medium of storytelling and, and every story needs a good setting. So here in, in the world of games, the game developer starts with a map, right? They create the map of the world first. Um, and the, the user doesn't get to really affect that map or, or import their reality. And when we start building our version of the world, we actually have no control over the map, right? The map is the real environment that the user is in. So instead of building all these tools out for people to create these you know, maps that are completely controlled by the developer and are imposed on the user now actually, and, and what, this is what AR and VR developers want to do. They want to respond to the real world environment of the user. And so we spend all that effort instead in allowing a user to import their reality, import the world, world there and import the, whether that's their dorm room or their living room or a place like the SF MoMA where we did an experience last year. The point is the user gets to dictate the world that they're in not not the the developer. It reminds me of uh, of like when Waze started, right? It was like right. the world is the world, but the users like it just started with a blank canvas, and then the users filled out the rest of the world as right. they see fit. Not right. how like and and I yeah, it's uh that's absolutely fascinating, and I think you've effectively painted the picture in my mind, um, which I feel like is hard to do. And then now we'll walk over and demo it. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Everybody should check out the company. Can you share where they can find it? Sure. Uh, they can go to our website, ubiquity6.com, sign up for early access, and we're starting to roll that out. We started rolling that a few few months ago, and we're really interested in people trying it out and giving us thoughts on, on our early access. Yeah, and we'll share it in our, uh, in our newsletter. This is like the cutting edge of cutting edge. Thanks so much for talking to us. You're the man, and we'll, we'll, we got to have you back soon because this is going to be a fun ride. Cheers. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.